Iranian-American author and religious scholar Reza Aslan has said, what both the believers and the critics often miss is that religion is often far more a matter of identity than it is a matter of beliefs and practices. The phrase, I am a Muslim, I am a Christian, I am a Jew, and the like is often not so much a description of what a person believes or what rituals he or she follows as a simple statement of identity, of how the speaker views her or his place in the world. Her or his place in the world. We Unitarian Universalists like to see ourselves as different from the followers of, quote, conventional, end quote, religions. But I don't believe we're as different as we think we are, or maybe we're not as different as we'd like to be. How does Unitarian Universalism make a statement about our place in the world? We don't share a gene pool the way many Eastern European Jews and Middle Eastern Muslims do. We don't even share a common set of myths. What we do share is a dedication to each of us finding a path we individually are called to. And a respect for each other's heartfelt belief systems. This is, I think, the source of much confusion about Unitarian Universalism, among us as well as others. Ask one of us what you use believe, and we're likely to point to the seven principles, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in our society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. But those are our guides to action and behaviors. And let's face it, they're pretty bland. Few would argue strongly against any of them. And they don't on their own describe a belief system. When the Unitarian Universalist Association adopted them in 1984, they were and still are followed by these words. The living tradition which we share draws from many sources. Direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. Words and deeds of prophetic, prophetic women and men, which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. Wisdom from the world's religions, which inspires us in our ethical and spiritual life. Jewish and Christian teachings, which call us to respond <clears throat> to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Humanist, uh, 
humanist uh, uh, teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science, and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Spiritual teachings of the earth-centered traditions, which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. As a theme for our lay-led summer services this year, the worship committee chose the principles and sources we were asked to choose one or more of the principles and sources to explore in a sermon. I first became a UU shortly after the principles and sources were adopted. And at first, they were always used together. You never saw the principles without the sources. But we UUs tend to be uh, action-oriented. We like that stuff about how we relate to the world and what we do. And we also, also often need to find more space in our orders of service and our websites. So the sources started disappearing. I remember when we dropped them from the UUCL order of service to make room for other things. So I was pleased that they were included in the summer service theme. And I chose to talk about the second source, words and deeds of prophetic women and men. Then I realized that I was probably the only summer, summer, summer worship leader who'd talk about any of the sources, so I thought I'd also say a few words about them in general. Comparative religion scholars look to the sources of authority as a key factor in any religion that helps set it apart. Judaism has the Torah, and the rest of the Old Testament, plus the Talmud and the, and the Midrash. Christianity has the New as well as the Old Testament, focusing especially on the life and teachings of Jesus. Islam has the Quran, articulated by Muhammad and incorporating many of the stories found in the Bible. Buddhism has the teaching of Siddhartha Gautama, as memorized by his followers, passed from generation to generation, and eventually written down in various formats. I'd say that the sources of authority for secular humanists are reason, science, and individual conscience. I don't know any other religion that uses such a wide and varied range of sources of authority, and I'll repeat them in brief. Direct experience, prophetic words and deeds, wisdom of the world's religions, Jewish and Christian teachings, especially the Golden Rule, humanist guidance, and earth-centered traditions. This, for me, is the heart of Unitarian Universalism. We are open to and seek out the good in all spiritual teachings. The Reverend Dr. Gretchen Woods is fond of saying, we celebrate the feasts of all and the fasts of none. I think that's also her way of saying that we seek out what's good, life-affirming, in every religion and reject those parts that tear ourselves and others down. That's what makes us different. When I say that I'm a Unitarian Universalist, that's the place in the world that I am proudly proclaiming. A place that honors the good to be found, if you look for it, in all traditions. 
Many of you know that Buddhism is an important part of my life. I doubt that I would have dived as deeply into it if I hadn't first found Unitarian Universalism in the mid-1980s. My first UU church introduced me to the books of the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Thanh and gave me the confidence to start attending his talks when he came to the United States and checking out other Buddhist temples and monasteries. He, of course, is one of the prophetic women and men who have inspired me, but it was a meditation led by his companion, Sister Chan Kong, that led me to become a practicing Buddhist. Now, what I've said so far is what I had written by midnight Friday night. I got stuck on this sermon and found myself resisting it. I have previously been responsible for about 100 other sermons, more than 200 blog posts, dozens of speeches for corporate executives, dozens of book chapters for business and management gurus, scores of op-ed articles and advertisements, several corporate advertising campaigns, several brochures, hundreds of newspapers, uh, hundreds of newspaper articles, maybe thousands. I am no stranger to writing under deadline pressure. But no project has ever, ever stymied, stymied me the way this one has. So late Friday night, I reread the second source, the one I had chosen to focus on. And then I understood why I was so blocked. Here it is again. Words and deeds of prophetic women and men which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, compassion, and the transforming power of love. That is a perfect description of one person who played a key role in my life very early on. I realized I need to focus on her despite the pain it brings me. That's why I had been so stuck. That's, that, she was the model who showed me how to respectfully meet evil and injustice with love and equanimity, and her life ended tragically in the struggle to do so. I'll leave my written text now for a few minutes. At this stage of my life and grief, I am not ready to have to tell her story twice, once by writing it down and again by speaking it. So forgive me if this part doesn't go smoothly. I grew up in uh, an all-white neighborhood of Philadelphia. Um, there were no people of color of any sort in my K through eight elementary school. I wasn't in the same class as, a, as an African-American kid uh, until ninth, until I started high school in ninth grade. And in high school, uh, I mean, the Jews and the Christians didn't, didn't interact. The whites and the blacks didn't either in the 1950s. Uh, up, up to, I was in high school in around the very beginning of the 1960s, maybe 59 to 63. Um, but around the time I graduated, uh, a friend introduced me to an African-American woman named Alice Johnson. She, I like to describe, she was in her 30s at the time, and I like to describe her as, uh, and again, this was the very early 1960s, this was around 1960. 
or, or no, 1963. I like to describe her as uh, a woman who wore her hair natural before the word Afro was invented. She was somebody who was comfortable with her blackness, comfortable with her gender. She was comfortable in the world uh, and had a way of dealing with everyone where they were at the time. Uh, she'd grown up in West Philadelphia. Um, somehow, I never, I, never, I never got this part of the, her story, but somehow she got herself through Antioch College and then uh, won a competition for uh, jobs in the State Department. And she served tours in, in Japan and um, Africa before um, things started to happen back in the United States. The civil rights movement started to happen. And so she decided to move back to Philadelphia, buy a house in what we then called the ghetto, um, and do her part uh, for civil rights. And for some reason that I will never understand, she decided that I was the little brother she always wanted to have. I don't know what, what I don't know what led her to that. Maybe it was just opportunity. I was there and I was willing. So I would drop by her house all the time, hang out. Uh, I was always around, always welcome, and and learned a lot um, at a time when people were screaming in protests and and marching and and rioting. And uh, she was speaking truth respectfully to power. And people listened to her. She got things done. She did things. Um, the example that I remember most is she just went to um, the local telephone company and said, you know, you got a lot of blacks and Hispanics in very low-level jobs. They're not getting promotions. I understand your problem. I understand that they may not have the skills they need for more professional jobs. The next, you know, the next step up from janitor or, um, you know, the, the more menial jobs was called a lineman. Uh, somebody who went and checked lines in, in the closet, things like that. Um, so she said, I, I understand that, that they don't have skills. And so I understand your problem. And I understand that you want to be more integrated. And you want to be fair. So I'll tell you what. I'll run a program for you. Uh, you give me a grant to run it. I'll go get Temple University to give a space. And I'll run a program, to a voluntary program, to help those people improve and get better jobs. And she did. She got them to agree to that. She got Temple to give her space. She came around to people like me to teach. Um, and the, the people who went through that program... Some of them got better jobs. Some of them decided that the telephone company wasn't where they wanted their careers to be and went elsewhere. But they all benefited from what they got. Um, she uh, got married to a guy named Brian, J. Brian McDonald, who was um, remarkable in his own right. Um, he 
he used fa he had been a um, Jesuit seminarian and was censured by the Catholic Church. He was forbidden to take communion even at his own mother's funeral um, because he had written a letter saying there is no sin. Um, and he, in the summer of 1970, fasted for 30-some days in um, Lafayette Square over the um, U.S. invasion of Cambodia. Somehow out of that became friendly with, uh, with Henry Kissinger. That must have been an odd couple, but... Um, uh, and that, he too had that way of being able to speak to anyone where they were and are. And he became, uh, the three of us were best friends. Later in 1970, I moved to New York and, you know, we stayed friends, stayed in touch. I sometimes helped them with projects. And then in, um, um, 1971, Alice called and said she wanted to come up for a week and spend a weekend with me in New York. Could she, could she come up to my apartment? And she did. Um, and that weekend, it was like December 3rd to 5th, 1971. Um, you know, when you have a, a big sister or a parent or, or, or someone who's an authority figure, at some point in your adult lives, I was then 25, she was maybe in her late 30s, at some point in your, in your adult lives, you become equals. Uh, and that was the weekend where she leveled with me about her own tribulations, her own doubts, her own problems. She had never done that before. And that was the weekend that we kind of graduated to a new kind of relationship. On Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, December 5th, she took the train to Trenton. See, she had, she had planned that weekend because she had a new mission. She had gotten Rutgers University to um, appoint her as a faculty member so that she could go into Trenton State Prison, which is uh, one of the awfulest, or was at the time and probably still is, one of the awfulest prisons in, in the United States. Um, the one where Hurricane Carter spent a lot of time. Um, she got Rutgers to let her go into Trenton State Prison to teach courses for college credit. Um, and she had gotten herself an apartment in Trenton. And so she left my uh, apartment that Sunday late afternoon to take the train to Trenton and um, set up her apartment. Now, one the one thing that she didn't have patience for the, the one thing where she could get a little blunt and nasty was when she saw kids hanging around, the, 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 the African-American boys hanging around on corners, dissing their parents, dissing the world, withdrawing. And she was famous around Philadelphia for talking to those kids and sending them home to apologize to their mothers for dissing them for cleaning white people's homes, sending those kids home to, to, to um, ask what they could do to help. That night, December 5th, 1971, she picked the wrong bunch of kids in a street corner in Trenton to talk to, and she was stabbed to death hours after she left my apartment.
That was the first of many sudden, traumatic, violent deaths. That sort of somehow my, uh, my life has uh, seen more than its share of those. She was stabbed to death. My uncle and aunt were shot to death by their son, my first cousin, who later hung himself in his prison cell. Uh, my sister and brother-in-law were killed in an automobile accident. And then my son Thomas fell off his skateboard, hit his head and died. Uh, and there were others, but those are the main ones. And I guess I had somehow, after the first anniversary of Thomas's death, and, and thinking about this and, and kind of thinking that I probably chose that because it, without understanding it, <coughs> because it did describe her so well and her influence on me, what she gave me, both in her death and in her life. I was, I didn't, at, at the age of 25, I didn't understand how important she was to me. And I didn't understand how important the grieving process was. So I never fully dealt with Alice's death. Um, you know, Brian, her husband, had me stand next to him in the receiving line at her memorial service. And I thought at the time that it was, he just wanted, wanted me there with him. But I realized now that it, he was giving me the place of little brother. I was little brother at that memorial service uh, without really understanding it myself and without understanding our relationship. So anyway, it's taken, taken me a little I've never fully dealt with Alice's death and understood it. But she was one more uh, casualty of the civil rights movement like any of the other casualties. Um, and I intended, I intended to write a sermon about inspiring figures from various religious traditions and various times in history, from the Buddha to Muhammad Ali. And you'll see a quote from him in the order of service. Um, beautiful quote. Rivers, lakes, ponds, streams, oceans all have different names but they all contain water. So do religious traditions have different names, and they all contain truth, expressed in different ways, forms, and times. But instead, I wrote about one woman who seldom went to any church. I think she grew up Baptist, and her memorial service was in a, uh, an Episcopal church. Her life and her death inspired me in ways I'll never fully understand. So let's take a moment in silence to reflect on the people, living or dead, who have inspired us spiritually. And when you're ready, you may name them out loud. 